You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. This is a special micro episode, Chatting with Mark, where I catch up with a previous guest about a topic that's captured their attention. This episode was recorded in April 2023 when I chatted with Amber Boardman about her creative art practice during the past few years. We also chat about Amber's experiences and perspectives on teaching art online during the pandemic as well as teaching and learning that favour a theory-based or conceptual approach versus those that are focused on studio techniques. We explored the process and benefits of social learning in the form of artist dialogues, one-on-one studio visits and mentoring. And we end with a brief discussion about artificial intelligence and its potential impact on visual art making. Very nice to be back in your studio. Nice to have you back in my studio. <laughs> so, um, we spoke several years ago and you were preparing, I think, or you had j- just finished off a show, but I mean, this is kind of in 2018. The world is a different place now. So, I guess give us a, an idea of either you can skip to just what you're working on at the moment or do you want to kind of talk us through some of what's led to your uh, your current work uh the what's led to the current work is just um a continuation of what we talked about in 2018 which was which is that was an exhibition i just finished and i guess the easiest way to say it is all of my work is kind of an exploration in anthropology. Look, you know, looking at how, it, it, looking at different aspects of culture in the form of a, a painting exhibition. So maybe the easiest way to, for people to understand it is thinking about maybe bands that write concept albums where every song is like a piece of the puzzle and the whole album is about one theme or each of my paintings is maybe a sentence in a short story. It's like that. So I really think of the exhibition as a whole rather than just painting, 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 oh, there's time for an exhibition, I'll just put in whatever I have. Like it's all conceived from the beginning mm-hmm. as uh, one theme. So the, one of your previous exhibitions was a theme of, well, I guess the, that wellness painting was, that was a standalone kind of. That was part of the exhibition that I was had just finished that in twenty eighteen. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, do you want me to talk about about her or that show? Or? Well, maybe just yeah. Maybe just so we've got a sense of what was sure. the theme. Yeah. And I mean, is anthropology common throughout every one of your themes? Yeah, the anthropology thing goes through all my work. So the the twenty eighteen exhibition, I, I was looking at culture specifically i guess wellness culture and culture that develops as fads and trends on instagram and i was looking at how can i sort of talk about what i'm seeing as the way that culture changes and i i did it through the idea of coming up with one character and it's all sort of told through the 
the actions of, of one character who's kind of changing, molding herself yeah, she to wasn't conform. happy, as I remember. She, or she wanted to kind of explore different ways she could improve herself. Well, she keeps molding and changing herself based on what like, she sees on Instagram, is what yep. beauty is, what, what, what you should do. She sees that and she keeps changing herself because she's a character made out of paint. Mm. She, and she, at some point, becomes self-aware that she's oh, made out right. of paint. It's all coming back to me. <laughs> she ends up creating her own character out of paint and then she ends up creating her own products to sell on Instagram. So it's, just, so, it's so like that, a little novel. She, she had her own uh, kind of moment, but yep. then what, what did that lead to for yep. you as, a, as an artist? So doing a deep dive into one character af after spending maybe three years on that project, I, I just wanted to look at how crowds behave as a whole, um, how a crowd, crowds. crowds of people, and how crowds can grow, they can change, they can be protesting things, they can be violent, they can be good. They, I mean, it's, the psychology of a crowd is very different to the psychology of an individual. So what, what did you explore? I guess is that one of your crowd that's one paintings of them. in the background? Um, I explored, that's sort of, the one we're talking about is a six foot by nine foot, what, so three meter or something? Yep. Three and there's like about painting. dozens and dozens of these faces. Yes, it's a sea of faces. It's called Massive Touch Network. It's kind of like a visual embodiment of the internet where every, everything's kind of connected together through this, like this invisible glue holding that cloud together. So the crowd. there's no one identi identity in there. It's all kind of like definitely just the crowd yeah. as, a, as a unit type yeah. thing. Yeah, and how everyone sort of <clears throat> touching through this invisible media, basically. But some of the crowds were like, I did like a Black Friday sale painting, where it's like people trying to get, you know, discount TVs, but killing each other, like which happens in America. A well, lot. as you <laughs> say, yeah, the crowd has a life of its own. Yes, yes. So each painting looked at a different ways, a way that crowds can behave. So that was right before the pandemic, which was interesting because we weren't allowed to be in a crowd well, <laughs> right, right after that yeah. show. Came yeah, out. it's an interesting idea because that concept of that's probably the one thing that people missed most. Yeah, yeah. And then I was looking at, you know, what, what life looked like in the pandemic. I mean, for me especially, it was I was teaching a lot online, so everything was online for my life except for the work in the studio. So what was and that so like? that was a show called Decision Fatigue, and um, it's, it's basically about the millions of decisions we make in a day and how a lot of those decisions are screen-based, but uh, how willpower gets eroded after each decision. So by the end of the day, people just have less willpower to do anything or to... Does that mean that like, making a decision takes a bit of energy? Yes, it does. And we make way more than humans ever have made in the past <laughs> we were making constant decisions and some of them are really inconsequential like what movie to watch on Netflix and you're trying to relax but it's actually like daunting because there's we have so many choices now mm. and it's sort of like this weird sense of abundance but we're all being kind of held under by it because it's just too much the too muchness yeah well I guess that kind of whole uh, recommendations kind of seemed to bubble up as it because people had they were seized by too many options yeah. and then they would start to seek out you know well what's good or you know what can you recommend yeah. that sort of thing and I guess it's kind of that supermarket culture maybe 
I'm assuming there's a, there's a supermarket kind there, of there's a supermarket here. painting in yes. that in that show. <laughs> as you remember, yeah, yeah, that kind of like oh, this it, like on a, on one level, it's really seductive because it's what's not to like. You've got you're empowered. You've got all this sort of choice, but then at some point in there, you kind of it's well, I don't know if it's counterproductive or well, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. A lot of yeah. People, yeah. And there's, there's a Tinder painting, you know, it's like millions of people you could be dating. How do you choose which one to date? And yeah, I didn't figure that. Yeah. That's kind of like a, a bit of a new technology. That's kind of human technology. That's crept yeah. up this sort of idea of deciding who yes, no, yes, no. Or what is it? Swipe left, swipe right. Is yeah. there a, a does it, that kind of thing, does Tinder um, feature in that show? Yeah, there's a painting yeah. called Dating App Algorithm. It's like a big painting full of people's profiles. And then there's the kind of invisible algorithm made visible connecting people together in that painting. And then what, well, yeah, I guess it's very much of the moment, this sort of, uh, these concepts of, you know, more than ever. And I guess with the pandemic, it's kind of like every, almost like every human interaction needed to be mediated yeah. by some sort of technology. And then I guess it's, so hang on, I'm just rethinking that that was in 2019, I guess. That the show, the crowd show was 2019, Decision Fatigue was 2021. Yep. And then last year was um, Real Estate Religion okay. in, in Melbourne at Sophie Gannon Gallery. So what was, I mean, you know, living in Sydney is sort of like a bit of a hot topic. It's yeah. a topic I like to avoid, actually. Yeah. But I know a lot of people are. People love talking about real estate. It, it was sort of about how, you know, the reverence for home and, and our stuff, you know, it sort of really became like a religion almost for people, not just in Sydney, but lots of places in the world. I mean, real estate prices went sky high. I think, you know, just the idea of everyone's in a panic, who knows what's going to happen in the world and everyone wants like a safe bunker. So I wanted to make a show about that. So a lot of it was interiors or things like junk drawers, storage units, like file cabinets, just everyday things in the home that kind of become this, I don't know, almost like, a, what are religious objects called? Artifacts? No, yeah, artifacts, or there's a word for it. I can't think of what, uh, relics, or relics, I don't even know. Relics, icons? Yeah, how it, it's just, you know, Religion, word, religion is less uh, a part of people's lives than it used to be, but you know, people's people people's domain is you know. Why are they participating in that kind of like a what what does it bring to them that kind of? I guess it's you know safety. It's like it's it's a your your home whether you own it or not. It's the container for your life, your stuff, your all the drama, all the events of your life is all happening you know in this place. So. And then what about this? We're looking at a few um, paintings here, and then this is going to be ready for June, I think you said? Yep. This is an exhibition called Dude. I just finished Dude. painting it. D-U-D-E. D -E. So we are unable to share the visuals of these paintings. <laughs> However, we, we shall discuss some of the content yep. in words. So this, this is a return to a character, kind of like full circle back to where we were in 2018, thinking of a central character who's kind of creating the work. So this is a guy who's like, you know, working a construction job and an excavator, living out his life, hiking with friends, 
you know, ups and downs of relationships, but throughout his life, he's just sort of dealing with the, the kind of everyday events of his life by creating sculptures. So, so what we're looking at, are these paintings of his sculptures? They're or? paintings of his sculptures. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I don't know how interesting any of this is going to be for your audience if they can't see the work, but well, yeah, you, you know, can cut this part They have to kind of visualize it, obviously, but you know, the center of our conversation is like what's driving you to to create these on, on behalf, I guess do is part of a, he's a creation in it himself, but yeah. then I guess I like the anthropological aspect that you mentioned. And I mean, how many of these, how many paintings will be in the whole? 22. 22? So this is three. They won't all be this size. Right. Yeah. And so how do you, do you conceive all of them at once or do they come to you kind of in dribs and drabs or how do you, you know, you've got a theme of dude and his sculptures. So I don't know. Can you give us an insight into how it, how, happened. How so, it happens? I mean, so much of my work is developed over the course of one to two years. So it changes a lot in, that, in the course of that time. This one came from the simplicity of I just wanted to play with painting objects. I wanted to play with shadows and light and reflectivity. And so still life is a way to do that. It's not enough for me just to paint shiny things. Like I need more meatiness, I need more narrative. So little by little, I just kept coming up with like, okay, what, what's a pile of objects I could create that would have a story? And so I just, they, they sort of just kept coming. I would make, make sketches and then I would start the paintings and then go back into the paintings, make more sketches. And then just, there's this character sort of emerged. They were all kind of like some goofy guy just, you know, living out his life making sculpture. It just came over time. When I kind of figured out that there was a central character, then I would keep fleshing out the paintings. So it all, the narrative, the paintings, the character all gets developed in tandem. So with Jade, we saw her and, you know, uh, the, the results of her endeavors, but do we see Dude? Nope. Will we ever see him? I don't think so. No, I, I liked, I think I need, I think after the crowd scene show, I think I just wanted to take the body out of my paintings for a while. I think um, I was tired of painting people. I was tired of some of the politics around it. Like I felt like if I only paint people with my skin color, that's wrong. If I paint other skin colors, that's wrong. So I was like, I think I'm just going to take skin out for a while. And, and then I guess you've got the stuff. whole gender, agenda kind of and then thing Then there's a gender well thing the, too. But, dude, no, but yeah. still it's Painting kind of from the perspective of a woman, from a perspective of a man. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Mm. <laughs> so, so what about with the kind of the whole, you know, we've all lived through the pandemic and all of that, that what that meant. And I mean, you, you mentioned online learning and teaching and you were kind of you know wherever you were working at the time they kind of um offered that as a alternative just to kind of get through the kind of intensity of the pandemic how have you seen the kind of or how have you revisited the concept of how the options maybe of teaching and learning in this kind of creative space and you know, they're, they're kind of certain preferences that you prefer or that your learners prefer. What do you kind of see, what are you doing in the next short while in terms of like, can you teach someone to do this sort of stuff? <laughs> it's so terrible to phrase it that way, but 
there, sh there must be serious limitations with online approaches. Um, well, I found that at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all new to everybody to be taking classes on Zoom. And I think a lot of my students were maybe grateful to just have a, a little bit of structure in their day when otherwise they didn't have as much and something to focus on and something to go toward. And I found lots of ways to try to teach painting um, online and try to you know, make sure the students were painting safely in their own homes. I mean, it definitely wasn't the best, but in some ways for art students, part of being an art student is being creative. So you kind of have to roll with that. Later on, you know, in the last year, everyone, I think, in the business world and lots of worlds are really sick of Zoom and really sick of um, that sort of meeting space. So I think it's been a lot harder as the pandemic has gone on to keep students focused. I think most people, they're over having their cameras on. They, they're just looking at something else. I don't know. So well, what is that something else? Have they returned to maybe uh, traditional methods or something like that? Um, oh, no, I mean, they're looking at other windows open on their computers when you're teaching oh, them. Right, right. <laughs> well, literally, windows on the screen. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, I mean, now we're back in the classroom, but I feel like the students I have now are maybe, I mean, understandably, struggling more than maybe they would have been. I think some people, they came and told me that they hadn't really talked to anyone in person in a couple of years. They were, you know, wow. they came from overseas, they were stuck in an apartment, and, you know, they felt really, really weird to be, you know, in a classroom again. And so I think that's been pretty hard for a lot of people. I also think maybe there's people who, maybe they would have taken gap years or done other things, or I don't know. I think more people are maybe studying art degrees who, don't necessarily really want to be studying. I don't know, maybe it's not quite a match. And as a result of that, I'm now thinking of ways that I can still have an art dialogue as part of my life in a way that makes sense to me. So what, have you, what do you have um, you know, in mind? Or what are you yeah. doing? So two, two things, one that I actually started in 2017, but I've continued with, which is when I have exhibitions, especially exhibitions overseas, I, I didn't like the idea of just flying in somewhere, having a show and leaving and not really getting to have a dialogue with anyone. So I wanted there to be a way that I could say, here's what I'm doing, here's my work, what are you doing? So I would do these sort of one-on-one -on -one studio visits with artists. Um, in the gallery or wherever and hear about what people are working on. We just have a chat. If I, you know, it, it, it sort of more end up being more mentoring. I didn't know if it was going to be more peers or more, more emerging artists interested, um, but yeah, it ended up being more mentoring. You were doing like a kind of uh, sort of like, not interviews, but like you'd, you'd be at a desk and then you'd have, you know, um, people could come and, and kind of share their work with you and yeah. have a chat. Is yeah. this an extension of that kind of approach? It's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I've done it in Australia and different in America and a few places. So it's like, what are you doing? Let's talk about it. So what are some of the, what were some of the advantages or some of the benefits or some of the, the kind of cool things that, that kind of bubbled up from that process? I think it's the same stuff that um, artists can always benefit from especially if it's not attached to a degree program, 
which is just here's what I'm working on. I'm working in isolation in my room. No one's looked at this. What do you think? And so we can talk about, mm. you know, some of the themes in their work, materials, processes, ways of taking it forward. It's just like a typical workshop method that people do. And yeah, so you think there's value in that kind of dialogue. Yes. And, you know, I guess it's a, a little mini kind of uh, audience. Yeah. Showing the, just the physicality of showing another person and getting their response. Yeah, it's just like a, it's just a workshop, really. But it's like bringing the workshop to a, to a place and having people sign up. Yeah, like it's not just a kind of happenstance, it's actually structured a and planned. Bit, yeah. yeah, and then we moved that online in COVID. I did some of them online, which was great because it opened up to people all around the world who wanted to do it. There's a real need for people to, you know, find a way to keep going. Like being an artist is hard. And I think especially you have to be so self-motivated. And if no one's ever seeing it, you, you kind of, you need another pair of eyes on the work. So that's sort of what it's about. Yeah, I guess it's kind of so straightforward, but it's quite profound at the same time. That kind of just that kind of being able to, that's the whole point surely of, you know, you want to create something in order for it to be either seen or heard or read mm -hmm. or, or, you know, whatever cre creative expression is kind of uh, your thing. And, and without that, like the loop is not closed. Yeah. You need to see how things are being received. So following on from that, my studio mate, Lisa Wolf, another artist, she and I started this program that we're calling the Salon Series. I've also been calling it like DIY MFA. It's kind of like an MFA program where- Which, Master of Fine Arts? Yeah, yeah, thank you for- <laughs> DIY, DIY is do it yourself. <laughs> master yes. of Fine Arts. And what goes on in that? Well, the Master of Fine Art um, MFA program that I went to in New York and what a lot of them are like in the States is you just work with artists. It's not really all about papers and research so much. It's like you're making your art. Of course, you want it to be informed by what's happening in the world. And then these artists come and you, everyone talks about it. It's just the, the critique method, really, that we talked about a second ago. And so once you're not in a degree program, there's not much opportunity for that anymore. So we modeled um, this program. We got a grant from the Northern Beaches Council to run these sessions here. People had to apply. And once a month, um, we have groups come in and everyone, whoever's presenting that day, will bring work. And we all talk about their work. And it's the kind of thing that is great when you're in school, but when you're out of school, there's nothing. And so it's so what, just, what, are you, what are the mechanics of that? You kind of, mm -hmm. if it's a sculpture or a, 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 is it just one work or whatever they want to bring type thing? Whatever they want to bring. And generally the way that it works is someone will put something on the wall or a sculpture, whatever it is. And then the artist who made it won't, we ask them not to speak. We ask them to listen. We ask them to take notes. And we, everyone else starts talking about what it look, what they, what it looks like. So it'll, they'll talk about color, shape, what you know, almost What's like the describing. What's doing at this point? They're listening. But are they seated? Or are they in the middle of the room? Are they? However, doesn't whatever. matter. Yeah. I mean, it's not that big of a group, so they no, can be okay. anywhere. But the idea is. But um, they're not. They're not responding back to no, any feedback. They're, they're, they're just listening, sort of listening. They're taking it in. Notes. Yes. And so, sorry. What? What do? They, what do people? So initially, you, everyone else but the artist talks about what the what the piece looks like, almost like as if you're describing it to someone who 
can't see it. Then we move into the themes that, we, that might be coming out of the work, talking about what do we get from it, what do, what do we feel from it, what, it, what might it be about, and maybe ways of helping it move forward, and then the artist can talk about it. The reason we flipped it is because often if someone brings something in, they just start explaining and explaining and explaining it, defending it, and then it completely collapses the meaning of the work, and it tells everyone how to read it, and then it shuts everyone else down. So this is a way that the artist can almost like be a fly on the wall of a gallery, for example, and hear how an audience can read the work when they're not there, which is a much, that's usually how an art piece exists in the world. So it's just, it's feedback, it's, it's a generosity toward the artist, feedback for the artist to see their work in a different way and maybe think about ways of developing it further. Mm. And are they generally are they finished works or are they works in progress or we we've, we've asked for them to be something that's you know halfway three quarters finished that's kind of the best because it helps you maybe resolve it. Some people have brought in finished works. Some people brought in just tests that they're just thinking about. It doesn't. I mean, it's really up to what the artist feels like they're going to benefit the most from. So with creating our own program for how to talk about art, to me, it's fulfilling something. Like, I'm a full-time artist and a very part-time teacher. And there's something in me that those two work together. I really like making art and I really like helping other people make art. But at the moment, with the structure of the university and maybe students who are not, not quite as interested, I'm finding a way to just do it in a way that I think is people would maybe benefit more from. Yeah, well, I guess with different, um, especially when you have creative, creative media uh, organisations or schools, there's a kind of huge benefit to having an industry practitioner mm -hmm. to kind of feed back in because they act as a model or, you know, model of best practice or, you know, what, what's the done thing. They can offer specialist insights and advice. Um, but then sometimes there's a tension that exists with the kind of getting through the curriculum mm -hmm. structures and what does that look like, mm -hmm. who creates that curriculum, mm -hmm. all these kind of questions. And then timeframes, timetables, mm -hmm. structure. And you know, I guess it's kind of all these individual artists being, being kind of fed through such systems. Sometimes it, it doesn't work as well for some as it does for others. Or you know, the system itself can be too restrictive or not not kind of prescriptive enough or you know I find it right now it's very restrictive like I think you know there's a r real trend that I don't even know when it started since abstract expressionism I don't know especially in the you know 70s painting where you if you taught a student anything about anything technical about painting that's really bad it also happened in music like at Juilliard, if, you know, a friend of mine went there in New York and he's like, if you played a chord, that was really uncool. Like you, you can't do anything that comes from um, the, the technical, uh, I don't know, Western art canon or something that came before. And so a lot of that is carried over now where it's all they care about is the idea. And if, you know, I've been told, you know, if students want to learn how to paint, just tell them to go to YouTube. Don't teach them how to paint. And I just, I find that really restrictive because I think there's room to teach techniques and to teach concepts. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but it's, it's very uncool to be teaching them anything about how to use paint. 
right now. You mean, you mean like, um, like kind of craft skills, yes. that kind of thing? Here's how you mix a color. Here's what how this red works versus this kind of red. Like, but if you're in a if you're in a studio, just say like as an apprentice, that kind of teaching would come just really naturally each and every day as yeah. part of the experience. And so, um, yeah, it would be kind of like a, a holistic component. Yeah, Whereas I'm finding the students really want to learn some technical. Yeah, and they and then they have some tools to make stuff with. Whereas if it's all about high concept, they don't have any, they don't really have the techniques to create things with which to make high concept. It is very interesting because I was speaking to a nurse yesterday or the other day and um, she was telling me about the hands-on skills required of that profession. Mm -hmm. And then she used the phrase, oh, there's too much theory Mm -hmm. oh, I don't have, and we were talking about how that sometimes happens in when you teach education students because mm -hmm. you, you need the some degree of educational theory yeah. but then it it's, has to be the, the rubber has to hit the road at some point and so I guess there's parallels with this sort of what you're describing where I didn't realise that there's kind of this withdrawal away from that kind of technical skills or craft skills or, you know, they can, it's a bit brutal, they can watch it on YouTube. And so, in a way, it kind of makes me think it, it's like this kind of big concept that doesn't quite hit the ground, maybe. That's exactly what it feels like to me, Mark. Yeah. See, I guess because of, you know, this thing called learning design or, you know, curriculum, a lot of people don't realise that curricula can be designed, is designed, it doesn't just pop out of nowhere. Yeah. And with any sort of decision, or with any sort of design you have decisions, and so sometimes that is informed by a kind of pendulum swinging back or forwards or, you know, and I mean, it's a bit of a shame or it's limited maybe, having this kind of great emphasis on concept or the thinking behind it, because arguably it's kind of, yeah. I well, they're not philosophers, they're art students, so there needs to be something that's made. It's not just thought. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even philosophers, they still have to touch the keyboard, surely, yeah. or, yeah. you know. They need, they need some grammar, writing skills. Yeah, there's, there's skills in no matter <laughs> oh, what you mean. It just sounds so brutal and, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe they can look at Grammarly if they... Um, there you go. You know? Yeah, it is something that is a good talking point because, especially if you've been observing, you know, a bit of a, a, a bit of a vibe, or you know, sort of maybe students are benefiting from uh, some sort of instruction, whether it's just in time instruction or whether it's an actual lived, you know, you're in a studio and kind of, you know, learning how to more about technique and, but are all. I mean, you know, you can't speak for every art school, but is this a common trend? This sort of... It's a common trend. It's more popular in some schools than others, but it's pretty common. Yeah, you do get this tension in, um, say, the vocational sector, like mm -hmm. TAFE versus universities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the distinct, uh, distinguishing f factor is, oh, we focus more on the theory um, if you want to learn those skills, go to TAFE. And it's like, well, uh, okay, that's a bit simplistic. I just don't think it's, I don't understand why it has to be either or. It's, it's not difficult to introduce a painting technique 
by demonstration and then talk about ideas that that you could use with that technique i mean i, I don't I, it doesn't they don't, one doesn't take away from the other for me. They completely go together. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like students, creative students, they kind of sometimes little exercises get them moving and they, it may not lead to anything, but mm -hmm. it's, it's getting them their hands on camera equipment or hands on brushes. So they might be developing a little like an activity of some sort, you know, to how does one, uh, you know. So it's kind of the purpose of it is familiarity of of uh, craft skills maybe but sometimes they're not valued I guess well it just it's just funny because every practitioner I know obviously they're concerned with their ideas but it's also a constant dialogue between what their ideas are and what they're going to use to make those ideas like it's yeah, it's, maybe it's like this kind of artificial separated like a very scientific way of viewing it the system it does seem like that yeah, I think there's, if you want to be a painter, there's no shortcut to pushing paint around as much paint as possible over years of time. I mean, you can learn all the theory you want, but if you don't know how to actually, how paint physically moves and how, if you add this to it, it does this. If you don't know those things, you don't, you can't get very far. So what about in a cohort, a typical cohort of learners, surely not everyone's going to become a painter. Yes. So how do you resolve that kind of diversity maybe within a group well you just sort of assess where everyone's going to have different levels of skills and you try to find ways of demonstrating and showing uh toward any skill level i mean you know often if if i'm teaching something that i f i often say if you feel like you've seen this before no problem you can go do your own do your own self-learning now. I'm going to demonstrate this to people who have not seen it before. So I, th it's, I feel like it's like that with any, any skill, working with a camera or with anything. If you know it, great, go on and start the project. If you don't, come, let's talk about this. So I do have to ask about, you, do you have opinions about artificial intelligence, AI, in this sort of territory, visual art? My opinions are that I've played around with Midjourney and I was absolutely fascinated by what it can do. Played around with ChatGPT, also fascinated. A lot of people, when they know that I'm an artist, they've asked me, you know, are you worried that, you know, Midjourney and AI-generated art is going to take over the art world? And um, I don't, I have no idea, I don't know. But just from my own experience, I just, no matter what happens, like I can't stop painting and I can't stop making art. I just, it feels like a weird addiction. I need to do it. And as a practitioner, as an art teacher, people need to make stuff. And it's an ancient, it's always been that way from cave paintings till, and before that until now. So I don't know the answers, but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that if AI can generate more interesting stuff than humans can, that humans will just say, oh, we don't need to do that anymore. Like, I just think we're, we're always gonna be making stuff. Which is sort of a trite answer, but it affects me and it doesn't, I, I can't stop. Mm -hmm.